Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. This is the 303rd episode of the jazz session. It is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Also, thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com and celebrating their 10th anniversary with shows and music and CDs and all kinds of cool things. So please visit respectsextet.com and celebrate with them. And thanks to Dave Rabel for the Jazz Sessions logo. He is online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks to All About Jazz for carrying the show. You'll find it at their website, allaboutjazz.com. And there's also a widget that you can get from allaboutjazz.com that will put the latest episode of the Jazz Session on your website. And if you use that, please let me know because I'll mention you in my weekly newsletter. Speaking of which, you can subscribe to that newsletter by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on the mailing list link and joining the many, many people who each Monday receive an email from me. All it does is tell you what's coming up on the show that week and the following week, <laughs> assuming I know the answer to that second question. And it also includes some links to uh, photos and recaps of shows that I've been to and you know, sometimes a poem or two and uh, other things that I think might interest you. And it comes into your inbox every Monday. So you can get there again by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on the mailing list link. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can join the the throngs of people who hang on my uh, – none of my words, actually. But anyway, there's a lot of people who follow me on Twitter, and uh, I'd love to have you as one of them. And I tweet at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. I think that's all the business at the top of the show. I'll just remind you – oh, no, I'll remind you of this, that the show is member-supported. So if you like what you hear, please do become a member. You can do it very inexpensively or very expensively. I support either plan, and you'll find out how to do that at thejazzsession.com slash join. I got a funny email a few weeks ago from uh, a promoter, a music promoter, who's, who asked me whether I would have any interest in interviewing Ron Carter, uh, which is a ridiculous question. So I answered, of course, in the only way you can possibly answer, which is yes, anywhere and anytime. And a few weeks later, I was uh, sitting in uh, Ron Carter's apartment, uh, not all that far from where I lived when I first came to Manhattan, and or to New York, I should say. We had a lovely time. I, I met his grandsons, who were very, very charming, and uh, we just had a great conversation. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it was not in any way, you know, the kind of, like, you're in the presence of a legend and Therefore, I'm only going to lecture you. It wasn't that kind of a thing at all. It was it was very much a give and take, which is always really, really special, especially when you are, in fact, in the presence of a legend, uh, as Ron Carter is. He's not actually a legend. He really does exist. Yeah, I actually saw him. He's an actual human being who has moved through the world and, and played music. And as a matter of fact, it's been documented on recordings that you could go and listen to. I've never really liked the word legend used in that way or legendary. A legendary performer. No. No, he's he's actually real. He's not a he's not a figment of our collective imagination. Or if he is, he's a remarkably convincing one. So in any case, back in the 70s, in 1973 to be exact, which was a very good year, Ron recorded an album called All Blues for the CTI label, and uh, you'll hear him discuss. But unlike many of the things that were on CTI at that time, it was not kind of an enormous production number. You know, with strings and 87 musicians and all that stuff. It was just a quartet album. And it was unavailable in the U.S. Uh, digitally for a long time. And as part of CTI's 40th anniversary reissue series, it's just been re-released. 
So we'll start off with the opening track called A Feeling from All Blues, and then we'll hear from Ron Carter. a great deal of pleasure to say that my guest is Ron Carter. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning to you. One question that comes up a lot on this show, uh, particularly with bass players, I find, is about the changing role of the instrument over time. And one of the things that brought us here this morning is the 40th anniversary reissue of an album you did it on CTI that ends with a, a multi-tracked uh, bass piece that I think in many ways really kind of describes the different roles that the bass can have, uh, both range-wise in terms of holding down the low end and being the melodic instrument. I wonder if you've seen an evolution in what the bass is either allowed to do or expected to do? What's well, changed since the uh, actually late 50s when uh, Paul Chambers made such an impact with the Miles Davis band, his bass lines, and the fluidity with which he played his arco solos kind of set the stage for some new events. Uh, while he wasn't the only one to use his bow for solos, Major Howie was doing it, and of course, some great slam steward with the uh, uh, saxophone, saxophone player at the uh, Carnegie Hall 1944, was a great duo. Uh, he kind of brought it to another level. Uh, with the advent of uh, pickups on instrument and bad amplification on bass players' instruments in the clubs, of course, the bass is more clearly heard these days, which has given bass players a little more heart and a little more incentive that now that someone can hear them besides themselves, they can take some chances. And of course, at your house, you have more complicated uh, stereo equipment, uh, better gear, better speakers, better better CD players. So I think for the, from, from the listening point of view, from the audio file, the level has changed because their gear has gotten better. 
I think this has kind of bled into what choices we have. Not that they weren't always there, but now that they're more audible, we're taking more chances and uh, maybe are more more interested and, and more daringly setting the table for other events to take place within the band. Did that feel like a natural place for you to go, particularly given your formal training, uh, did it seem like that that more chance-taking path was a, an easy kind of natural road for you to walk? I think you just do it. You don't. Historians figure that out. We just kind of play <laughs> the music whichever way it's gone, and it's analyzed years later as a movement or a direction that took place at this specific time on this specific CD or LP. Uh, but I think musicians in, musicians in general, uh, if I can speak for musicians in general, <laughs> we kind of just play, you know. We, we, we're kind of aware that an event is taking place that's maybe different than the last band or the last saxophone player or the last major drummer, but we kind of don't get involved in that kind of career analysis and uh, directional of the movie music. We just kind of play and hope that at some point someone finds something that they can develop along with us. So your that sounds like your awareness of what's happening in the scene around you at any particular time is uh, is more organic, less less kind of tactical and strategic, and more just you are evolving along with the music around you as it evolves. Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like we were living in the vacuum and we just kind of <laughs> playing on Channel 2 all day and if everyone's on Channel 4, we weren't aware of that. We were aware of our environment. I was still freelancing a lot and the Herbie was doing some freelancing and Wayne, of course, was doing his other gigs. So we were not playing in the vacuum and we were aware of things that were going on around us. I think our, and I'm, again, I'm, I'm not trying to speak for them specifically, I think generally, I think we were aware that we were doing something a little to the left of it, to the left of everyone else, and we were content to see how far we could take this bent that we had stumbled on. Regarding this uh, this all blues album, uh, which was issued on CTI and is part of their 40th anniversary reissue series, although it's not quite 40, which makes me happy because it came out the year I was born, which means I'm not quite 40. Uh, is there anything in particular about this recording session that uh, that sticks with you? I know you've obviously been on thousands of records, but... Well, I think one of my aims for this specific record was to kind of pare the music down just to the core. Uh, at, up to this point, there have been a lot of CTI discs that were string backgrounds and horn backgrounds and all those things were really great to be a part of. But I thought that maybe this one disc of the series that I hope to be a part of, we could kind of just do this with a basic quartet or quintet and to see if the music and these players are, uh, are valid enough in their own right to make the music be able to sustain itself more than one listening with this kind of music. Uh, Joe Henderson, uh, uh, Billy Cobham, who people know a completely different environment. They know him to my Vishnu and those real power bands he was part of and in fact formed with Dreams. Uh, Roland Hanna, who people may know vaguely through the Thad Jones Mill Lewis band, but who's been playing, who's been in the leading, one of the leading piano players in the New York scene for really a long time. Uh, and I'm just trying to find my way here. I thought that with this kind of music and this kind of musicians who were sensitive to what I hoped they could be pull out of these notes they could find the kind of music stories that I was trying to write to make an audience want to come back and listen to the record more than once how did you choose those three gentlemen in particular 
Well, I've known Joe for a while, and we've made some early recordings for, sure. for, for Milestone. Uh, with Milestone, is it? Or on Keepner's label. Yeah, Milestone. Uh, I, I, I've seen Billy play with, with uh, this, his bands, and, and I was curious. Uh, he's left-handed, so I'm standing somewhere else with him when we play together, and I was curious if, if he could play, if he could use fewer drums, and if I could stand differently than I would stand somewhere else, could I still help him make some nice music? And I've always admired Roland Hanna's bands. He's had a couple of groups called the New York Jazz Quartet, Quintet, Sextet, whose personnel varied from Frank West to uh, Hubert Laws to Grady Tate to uh, uh, Billy Cobham at some point to Ben Riley. So our, our, our listening together and playing together goes back, goes back a long way. But... The interesting point of this music was that no one, none of those guys saw it before we got to the studio. They had to kind of trust the notes that I wrote would be better than I could explain it to them at a rehearsal. And we done, did it all in one day. Why did you do it that way? Well, I, I didn't want them to get so caught up in, in uh, their personal performance on the last take. I think when musicians play takes three, four, and five, then they just get so focused on can they play better that the big picture, the music kind of escapes them. And uh, I explained to them that, Jim, we have one take. If we get to two takes, I've made a mistake. And uh, to let them know that, uh, kind of like the big band in the old days, guys knew, man, they had eight bars for a solo. They knew they didn't have 16 minutes for a tune. And whatever they had to say, they had to say it in that space of time. Uh, so I'm just kind of alerting them to one my level of intensity, if they weren't already aware of it, I was just kind of putting it on the table. And two, I would expect from them the same focus, the same concentration. And I would accept the, the, the dust on the diamond, as long as I got the diamond. <laughs> That's a great phrase. Is, and is that the same philosophy behind not just rehearsing the music to death before the recording to just allow whatever was going to happen to happen? Yeah, I, I like that uh, the mystery. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not against rehearsals, although I sure. don't like to do them. 
Uh, that's sometimes pretty unnecessary. The music's complicated. Uh, we all can't get in town for the same time because we're trying to scramble to find the time we can all at least look at the music together before we get to the studio. Some of the composers are not sure what they want to hear, so they rehearse. I mean, all those reasons are really real. And in New York, they are happening all the time. It doesn't mean you got to like doing it. <laughs> you know? And, and my general view is when guys play the rehearsal, they've already kind of figured out a plan for the date. And it kind of takes the edge off the surprises that can come up when they get to the date again, you know. Even though the date is a month away or a week away, they still got this kernel of an idea of rolling around back then. They just can't wait to get to this tune and see if it works. Well, I want the, I want the surprise from 10 to 2 on Friday of this week, not 10 to 2 after Friday of next week. Sure. Did you already know who was going to play this music when you were putting it together for the record? Well, you, you know, I had I hoped that these were they would be available. No, Billy was busy with his projects, and and uh, Joe, uh, it's kind of difficult to pin down. You know, he's. He will say, ara, ara, uh, I'm not sure, can you get back to me four or five times before he's committed to doing it. So I took a chance that he would be available. And I knew Roland because I had just seen him during the course of a, a brief New York jazz quartet tour. I knew he'd be available. So I kind of wrote with these people in mind, hoping that they would be uh, able to help me make this project come to fruition. And one reason I asked that is exactly what you just said, that concept of writing with these people in mind. And you had obviously played in bands where who was in the band was an integral part of the band's success and the arrangements of the music. Yes. It seems like something that maybe that rubbed off on you as well. Well, you know, I like doing that. I like knowing who I'm writing for, and I like writing to their strengths. I mean, I'm not really interested in writing a, a part that requires... A player, no matter how great he is, to spend a month just playing the notes. That doesn't interest me at all. I want him to play. If that passage comes by, I say, hey, pick out the best 12 notes of this 85-note passage. And then just throw everything else away. I'm good with that. Sure. You know? uh, but I, I trusted their sense of maturity. And, and I trusted their sense of, of that they would fix the part. And they would tell me after the date. Sure. I don't want to know now. <laughs> tell me after. And they worked out very well. And... Uh, given that there hadn't been a rehearsal, were there things that happened in the date that surprised you, ways in which the music took a direction that perhaps you hadn't imagined? It always does that when it's done fresh. I mean, you take a chance that these guys are sensitive enough to to the music and they trust, as a bass player, that they trust your sense of making a note different here than it was there. You, you trust that they will respond in kind. So surprise is all a part of the package. When I mentioned that I was coming over here, I asked listeners if they had questions they'd love to ask you if they were in a room sure. with you. Uh, and uh, the guitarist, Reza Bossi, who is very active on the scene these days, one thing he was interested in was your perception of how the scene had changed. Uh, and I'm interested in that, too, particularly from the perspective of a maybe a, a young musician uh, entering the scene at the time you did versus someone who's entering the world of New York now and what you see as maybe some of the differences they would face or the opportunities that are or are not there? Well, I think one of the uh, 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 very obvious difference is the lack of record labels. Uh, when I came to New York in 1959, there were 10, and they were all major labels. Major. You had, you had uh, Riverside, you had Blue Note, you had Fantasy, you had Contemporary, you had CBS... Columbia with a whole church to record in. And yeah, 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 you had Verve. <laughs> right. You know, you had RCA Victor, you know, in Japan you had Mercury, you had East West. I mean, there were major labels. 
And I think because they are maybe a blue note, of course, mm-hmm. you know, a CTAC came a long way. So again, I think today maybe you have a major label that has a jazz act on it. And what that means is that the musicians coming today have fewer things with which to not just compare their playing with, but to see what their environment is like. You know? uh, I'm not sure that, that uh, back 40 years ago, how the music would have changed if musicians hadn't heard Sonny Rollins, or if they hadn't heard J.J. Johnson, or if they hadn't heard Tony Williams. How would that have affected the musicians, despite many guys feeling, and gals feeling, that they don't need that kind of external influence to allow them to feel free to do what they do. You know, and that's one of the age-old conundrums. If you hear a guy play long enough, are you going to start playing like him? And if you don't hear him at all, suppose you still play like him, you know. Uh, I think the other big thing is there's less radio play. So there's a smaller listening audience physically because they can't turn to the and dial on the number on the FM dial and hear this music again 40 years ago. Detroit, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, Houston, uh, Miami, they all had major jazz stations. Now New York has two. One's a college-run station. One is an NPR station. Chicago lost theirs two years ago. And uh, Philadelphia's kind of floating around between the one, the Temple, and the kind of a Frank Sinatra kind of station. Uh, One in San Francisco, they they kind of have their NPR moments, you know. So there's not the kind of chance to hear. I think the third factor, and this is probably... The least important is that there are fewer places to play because guys make their own, man. You know, there were more clubs back then. But musicians, if they want to play, and if they're determined to have an, an audience and find musicians, they will find and they will make a place to play. So that's the least of my numbers in terms of how different it is now as it was 40, 50 years ago. the concept of apprenticeship and the the opportunity for musicians to go out on the road for months at a time with an established artist 
uh, in the way that it was possible four decades ago, five decades ago, and the difference between then and now? Well, it's a little more complicated now because there aren't the, the, the big five bands, if you want to put them out. All right, Blakey, you know, Miles, Cannonball, to a lesser extent, uh, uh, Dave Brubeck, uh, yet Manny Ferguson had a great big band, you had the Count Basie band that was really active back then. Singers had great groups. Carmen McRae had a great group. Nancy Wilson had a great group. Those those permanent organizations, uh, they're still permanent, but they even have fewer places to play. And because they're up in years, they're not so eager to do a, a six-week tour. I mean, that's, that's a really a lot of work, even at a young age. Uh, so while the, while the apprentice-type environment is not so available, uh, the mentorship is not so available, uh, to play with a group is much less complicated because all these schools have organizations. They all got two or three big bands, and they have two or three small groups, and they have uh, one or two high-profile high groups. And all these groups have places to play in the city that locates that school. So it's easier to play in terms of finding somewhere to play. It's not so easy to find a, a, a mentorship, famous, I hate that word famous, right. <laughs> famous band to go on the road with and learn how our Blakey function in the band or to be in Cannonball's band or be in a Miles Davis band. Those groups, unfortunately, don't exist to that level anymore. I lived in Rochester, New York for a long time where the Eastman School is and I've talked to people who went to Eastman, you know, back decades ago who talked about jazz being a four-letter word. And nowadays in the academic environment, jazz is everywhere. There's, you know, any any music school of any size has a jazz program. Uh, and I wonder in your opinion if if you think that that has made a, a change in the way young players approach the music or the kind of young players that we get nowadays given that and that, that academic path is the more common well, certainly going to an Eastman or a Juilliard or a, a City College in New York or one in Bloomington, Indiana, Dave Baker's program, I'm sure these schools who take in students, that that environment certainly gives them a head start on developing a skill level that's necessary to do what they think they want to do. Uh, I'm not sure that 40 years ago the saxophone players acquired the level of skill level that saxophone players acquired in school for four years. It may have taken a saxophone player six years. 
and a lot of work to maintain the physical skills to play the instrument, or to learn a saxophone library to practice with, or to learn how to practice. I mean, all these things are advantageous when you're going to school full time, and the competitive spirit is always there, and all, the whole whole educational environment. Uh, I do think, in the meantime, though, that the schools who have these jazz programs, I would like to see them kind of broaden their, uh, have a less myopic view, if I could use that word. I think schools kind of gear guys and gals to go out and play in the jazz world. I'd rather see them have as a part of this education, not only have them geared to go out and play in the jazz world, but have them go out and get to be able to run a jazz department in a music store, or be able to write a, re write a jazz review, uh, be able to teach the music on, on a private basis, uh, be able to repair an instrument. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, be able to play a Broadway show. There's a lot of ways you can earn money playing music with a big M. And I'd like to see those schools broaden their vistas to give these students who are coming out from these jazz academies a better chance of not just staying in music, but finding something they can do that's just as rewarding as playing a hot B-flat seven. Were there those uh, kind of outside of the core jazz world jobs that you had to take in, or, or chose to take in the early parts of your... No, I, when I came to New York in 59, I taught uh, school for a year as a substitute teacher. I taught math, I taught uh, geography, and I had a gym class. I didn't teach music at all. Uh, I just thought that I had four years of, teach, of, of music in school. I just wanted to have some high school kids learn what else was there and wanted to see if I could do it. You know, my father was, had, a, had a real inclination toward math. And uh, I played a year of college basketball, so I wasn't in too bad a shape. And uh, I knew where Detroit was on the map, so I figured <laughs> that's a head start. Let's, let's, <laughs> I had two places I could figure out. So I figured, let's do this. And they were like the sixth and seventh graders, you know, and, and uh, the culture was completely different then. So and where I was, okay. was this? What, what school did you teach at? Uh, out, out in Long Island. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I took, came to New York and uh, took an exam for a teacher's license, and I stumbled my way through on piano, the Star-Spangled Banner, and that was okay. So, well, okay. You know, you kind of look at my, my resume and say, well, let's give him a chance. So for a year, I, I substitute taught, and it was great, you know. So while the options weren't as many, there were still options. Like I thought a substitute taught music I could have for a year. And I taught classes I wanted to teach, so it was great. Uh, I wasn't so interested in hoping and in, in, in getting involved in selling music or been a DJ for a jazz radio show because they just didn't occur to me. But now that's another option for kids to have when they graduate from a music, a jazz program at a college. I've never played the upright bass, but it appears to me to be one of the more physically demanding instruments to play. And I wonder how you, I mean, is there something, uh, particular care you've had to take to be able to maintain the physicality uh, to play the instrument. Well, I think if you play it right, you don't need to be uh, Charles Atlas. <laughs> you know what Charles Atlas is? <laughs> yes, I do. That's not before your time, is <laughs> no, it? No, okay. I know. And I'm just checking with your background. <laughs> no, I, I think every instrument requires some physical uh, capacity. Piano, although you're sitting down, you got to keep your hands in the right position, the wrist and the fingers, and trumpet, of course, got the armature. And, I mean, there's every, everything, drums, every, every instrument requires its own level of physical dexterity. Uh, Bass is neither more or less than those. Uh, 
uh, I have always kind of maintained a pretty, what I call a civil diet. I've never, uh, eaten, never been obesity has never been a problem of mine, and I have always gone to my doctor for a physical to see what kind of condition I am in. And, and uh, as you get older, you get m more need to monitor your health, and I have not been afraid or ashamed to do that. You know the prostate exam and. The, the vision exam and the high blood. I do all those things as, as on a regular basis, not to make it easier to play the bass, but to know what physical condition I must be in physically to be able to continue to play the bass. Uh, I take an, an, an eighty-one milligram tablet every day for for the heart. Doctors recommend that. Okay, well, if I do that, that means chances I'll be around to play the bass day after tomorrow with this medication. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> However, I have been getting up with my trainer every every other every when I want him in town, three days a week at five forty-five to work out for forty-five minutes. <laughs> a.m. Yeah, yes, thank you. I assumed <laughs> I assumed it was a.m. Uh, have you noticed over the years that the have things changed about your physical relationship to the base? Not necessarily as a result of aging, but just because of things you've learned about the way the base works or the no, way your I body think works. I'm, Playing it physically the same way, I'm playing it different musically because I've learned things to do that I didn't learn know to do years ago. And, and, and uh, uh, as I stumble on, literally stumble on things to do, it opens up other doors. So I've learned how to play things or I learned how to approach things that never occurred to me musically. Uh, how to set up a phrase, how to resolve a phrase, how to maybe not play a phrase, which we don't do often enough not play something. Uh, but physically, I'm the same, it's the same approach. Of course, as you know, you get older, you kind of lose a little bit of height. I haven't gotten there yet. I'm, <laughs> my birthday is 1937, so I'm the same height now as I was in 1959. But I expect as I get older, I will lose height like everyone else does. And, and uh, I may need to lower the base one half inch between now and uh, 2000, 2013. But right now, I'm using the same physical approach as I was earlier. People might be surprised to learn that you're still stumbling on things that are new to you, just given the amazing career that you've Man, had. Every, How has that happened? Every, every, every time I pick up the bass, it's a new lesson. When you play with different people every night, or even the same people, they throw you things your way that you wonder, how did I miss that night before last? And I have, right now, four private students who have assignments that I must be able to prepare so I can show them if I need to for the following follow-up lesson. Um, if you stay open 
and keep your mind on the options, you find more choices. And if you can recognize these choices, you just find things that you hadn't discovered before. One, one of my processes with my students is have them build baselines. And, and I'm telling you, they come up with a combination of notes that had never occurred to me. And I've been playing those same blues chords man, since I was 17. So I think it's, it's more a matter of uh, being much more comfortable to try to discover than being comfortable having discovered something. It sounds like there's a, a, a certain amount that you have to be willing to, to lay your ego to the side and say, there is still more I can learn. There's still Absolutely. more to experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you're saying you're having your students build bass lines, you mean over over forms that exist, over a 12-bar blues? And yeah, whatever the, the, the song is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, is it still important to you to to place yourself in new musical situations, to play with people you've never been on stage with before, or styles of music maybe that you haven't played before? Well, I hate to sound like this. it's important, but not really, not really necessary. Okay. You know, it's always important to find an environment that you find comfortable, that you find challenging. Uh, it's always nice to be in these environments where you would surprise, where you are surprised that this person and this environment even knows who you are. You know, I've been there a lot of times. But it's not so necessary anymore, right? Now it's necessary for me to practice once, to practice three hours a week, for example. It's much more practice. I want to find out different things about the bass, where the harmonics are, where the false harmonics are. If you change this string, what happens? If you use this brand of string, what happens? If you use this kind of pickup, if you use this kind of uh, amplifier, if you use this kind of cabinet. I mean, those things are still new to me, although I've been doing them for a while. As, as they improve, I kind of got monitored that level of improvement because I still want to go to the club and play and have everyone hear my notes. I want to have them hear what I'm doing back there besides standing up wearing a great tie. <laughs> That's not enough anymore, man, you know? So uh, it, it's not so necessary to play with new groups as it is interesting. Mm. And it's much more necessary to kind of develop what I think I've stumbled onto and make that try to work tomorrow night. Uh, two more questions for you. One sure. uh, is another person, who a listener, Joshua White, who's a young pianist. Uh, and he had asked about the kind of business side of the music. And what you were saying before about schools uh, reminded me that one criticism I often hear and I sometimes personally have about jazz school education is that there's not enough focus on how to actually conduct yourself in the world as a musician, not just playing your instrument, but how to navigate the world. Did did you have an education like that? Was that something you had to learn as you did it? it Well, I kind of learned as I went along, but I was always curious about maintaining control over what I thought was mine. You know, I uh, published my first bass book in 1964. And, I, and that process, uh, going to a printer, finding the printer, deciding what kind of stock you want to print the paper on, to print the music on, what kind of photographs you're going to use, where you're going to advertise, how much does advertising cost, where you're going to mail, uh, how are you going to have them get back to you, if you're going to need a post office box when come to you. I mean, I went through all that, man, 30 40 years ago, and, and, and uh, I had to get a, a company to run this organization, which was me, you know. Uh, but again, like as, as you're implying, there was no music course 
for the jazz player, although schools had music courses. They've always had music courses, man. You know, they're colleges who do nothing but teach how to run a business, how to organize a business. Uh, and I think with the music becoming, with, the, with there being many more opportunities that the musician must know how to copyright his song and what the process is, that's all changed, of course. Uh, do you need a music lawyer to handle your booking for a club? If you get an agent, what kind of restrictions do you put on them, or do you put any on them? Uh, how do you file your taxes? Do you need an accountant? You know, do you need a bookkeeper? You know, can you get your own pension plan? Uh, what about the pension fund at the unions where you are from? You know, are you paying taxes every year? You got to do that. You get paid cash every night. I've always been curious about those things, and I, uh, while there is no, while my students right now are not enrolled in the business of music, they feel free to ask me any question that concerns them about the business of music. Right now, the big issue now is that uh, two years from now, all the records, certain records are going to become available for the musicians who are on them to get their masters back. And the dust is starting to fly already between the, you know, uh, <laughs> Bruce, Bruce, yeah. Yeah, Bruce Springsteen <laughs> and the person from the, the Village People, man, and, and, and uh, Pink Floyd, the groups they're going to go. When, when this breaks open, when, when they finally, when the last court case is resolved, you're going to see some stuff changing, really. So, but I'm aware of that. And now that it's more publicly available, those guys are going to be aware of it. Sure. Uh, do you think that jazz, well, however you define that, is still relevant in 2011? Uh, again, we're kind of trying to define what the word relevant is. And, and, and I think that any art is relevant. All art can be relevant. And I think the more that specific art is able to gear its productivity and its, its visibility... Uh, toward a more broader-based audience, the more successful that art will be and the more viable it will be toward that audience. Uh, was, was that your word? What, 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 what was your word? Uh, relevant. Relevant, was the, yeah. Uh, you know, for, for example, uh, the opera companies in the major cities are now having uh, uh, the lyrics... Oh, the lyrics, right... <laughs> The bread will translate it into English along the, either the back of the Which seat. Which they show, or, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, okay. Now, we think that they're trying to do, trying to make this opera more relevant to a broader spectrum of audiences. Now, I've said for years, and I, if, you, if you could find these tapes that are probably molded by now, <laughs> maybe a wire, how, how long it's going to be back. Uh, my feeling has always been, and this may be off your topic, but it's important for me to get this to you, is always felt that jazz was too complicated and people didn't understand the changes and they didn't understand the form or they didn't understand the exchange of ideas or the drummer's high. They didn't understand the bass player's lines and the core voicing. So because it was so complicated, they didn't understand what was going on, so they didn't come to jazz clubs anymore. Well, my response to that has always been if you go to any opera and any major, major city, just he figured they're more sophisticated. That's, that's the rumor, right? And have them do a Monteverdi opera or a Puccini opera. I bet out of the 2,000 people who may be there out of a 2,500 seat hall, 
Maybe three of them can tell you exactly word for word the translation. Everyone else is flying by the seat of their pants about the notes in the program notes. Now, why are they able to be basically pretty dumb? Because they don't know what key it's in. They don't know what the harp is playing, or they don't know uh, the note that the second English second flute is playing. They have no idea about that. They just end up there kind of getting the stuff smashed in the face with them, and they're, and they're enjoying it. Great. But they don't know, and they know a lot less about the opera, even with the footnotes in the, in the playbill, than the guy who comes to a jazz club knows about a Cedar Walton trio. Why, why isn't he able to enjoy the trio and not know, and, and be as, I hate the word dumb, be as, be as uh, technically ill-informed, you know, than the guy who goes to the opera and he, does, he knows less because there are more choices for him, and he's okay. But I think my, my, my point, Jason, was that the relevance of any art, I think, depends on how that artist makes his music, his art, relevant to his perceived audience. Not that they will do things deliberately to alienate people from coming to the gallery or coming to the opera house, or coming to the jazz club. They're looking for their fans. They look for people who are going to like what they do, whether it's avant-garde music, whether it's a, a Broadway show doing a, doing a different take on a, a play, uh, whether it's an opera where they have different instruments for the first time to see if it draws another kind of people. They want to remain relevant to a certain segment of the public that's clearly escaped their clutches. So I think all art hopes to be. And I think despite the, the lack of opportunities for audiences to be funneled toward the jazz community, jazz is still very relevant. Uh, <laughs> that was great. It's a long answer, but I couldn't, get <laughs> no, it, I, I couldn't do it any other way. <laughs> now it's time for my nap. <laughs> Uh, and I wasn't going to ask you another question, but just because of the, phone, and the okay. phone call we just got, okay. uh, and you don't have to answer this, okay. but uh, before I interviewed jazz musicians for my living, I was a union organizer, and we just got a phone call from a member of your family who's on the Verizon picket line, and I wonder if there's anything that you wanted to say about uh, labor in this country at this point or uh, well, what people need know, to know about unions. And yeah, The moment Reagan fired those FAA guys, the stuff started going downhill fast, and I was, I was, I was kind of stunned because the people who didn't recognize the implication of that were those subsequent families who were paying the biggest price. You know, it, it just amazes me that, that they had no foresight that even the President of the United States makes a mistake. And that's a huge one, man. I mean, uh, you look at, the, you look at the, the corporate earnings for the year, man, and, and how much the, the CEOs a big bank who will name, 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 who will remain nameless, paid their corporate head, headquarters bosses $285 million in, in, in bonuses. I mean, man, can you imagine how that could be spread around the union with the pension plan and the health plan and, and uh, whatever concessions they must make, it would kind of balance out. But to give these six people that kind of money and claim poverty, it's just amazing to me. So I've been a union person for a long time and I've walked my share of picket lines and I have boycotted rooms that were on the boycott list because I thought the boycotts were, were valid and the place that was being put on the boycott list earned the right to be there. <laughs> and uh, I keep telling my friends who are on the picket line, just be careful. Sure. 
It's been such an honor for me to talk to you. My guest is Ron Carter. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Hey, Jason. Thank you. Thanks. That's music from Ron Carter and his 1973 recording, All Blues, just reissued on CD, or in fact in the States, issued for the first time, uh, by CTI. Well, not actually by CTI. CTI doesn't even exist anymore. I can't remember. Is it Sony, maybe? I don't know. Some enormous multinational corporation headquartered, you know, in Luxembourg for tax purposes. In any case, it was originally recorded for CTI, and uh, you can find it by going online and looking for Ron Carter, All Blues. I'm Jason Crane. That's the Jazz Session for this week, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do become a member if you like what you hear, which you can do at thejazzsession.com slash join. And now, if you would please, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session.